Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and you're here with me for episode 265. And today we're going to be speaking with Sam Stubbs from Simplicity. And we have a really amazing conversation because we really dive into his childhood, his background, and what were some of the factors that led to starting Simplicity. This is definitely one of those interviews that I love because it's so wide ranging. Like we literally jump from topic to topic and end up talking about our Maori, talking about social housing, talking about the future of social enterprise, all those good things. If you enjoy it, then make sure to check out in the show notes some links that we put to things that we discuss. And don't forget that there's hundreds of other interviews in the back catalog, so you might want to check some of those out as well. And why not hit subscribe so you can stay up to speed with future podcast episodes as well. And it'd be really appreciated if you do enjoy the episode, why not tell a friend or even post on social about it? I have no marketing budget, so this podcast is completely reliant on all of you listeners telling others about the show. But there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this interview with Sam. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Sam Stubbs from Simplicity. Thanks for joining me. Hi there. G'day. Yeah, I'm really glad that we can connect because we I think we met a couple of years ago, um, and I've been wanting to have you on the podcast because what Seeds is about is actually planting seeds of new ideas, new ways of thinking. So I'd love to find out more about simplicity and about what you're doing there. Um, But before we get into that and what you're doing today, I'd love to go back in time with people. And if you could just describe where you were living when you were, say, four or five years old and what was life like for you. So we're going way back in time. Sure, sure. Look, I'm a very typical kid. I mean, I grew up in West Auckland in a place called Sunnyvale, which is not many people know it, but it's between Henderson and in Glen Eden, and um, my parents were school teachers, and uh, we lived on Seymour Road, which was a pretty typical road back in those days. Back in those days, West Auckland had a whole lot of orchards and pony clubs and stuff, so it was actually a semi-rural lifestyle, even though now you wouldn't know that. It's got houses everywhere. And, um, uh, I, you know, normal childhood, normal state school, nothing particularly special. And um, and But it was, you know, I had people who loved me and I didn't, they had no concept of that anyone lived any differently. You know, it was, so in many, in many ways you would call it a, it's almost like a working poor environment back then. It certainly wasn't a a wealthy suburb at all. It's quite a poor part of town, but when everyone's like that, it feels very sort of, you know, swallows and Amazons mucking around and no one has any money. So that's fine. You just make do with what you've got. So it's just what you know, right? <laughs> just what you know. Yeah, exactly. So I only just became aware of that there were rich people and money and all this sort of thing. I could go quite late in life because mm. back in those days, New Zealand, I think was a lot more egalitarian. So there really wasn't a very wide gap between the rich and the poor in any one suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, while you were aware of some of it, it really wasn't, it wasn't so either aspirational if you wanted to be like that, or it certainly didn't send messages to you that you were any different or that you were better or worse or whatever. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about your parents. Did you say they were both teachers? Was that education was a big part of life then? Yeah. So my mum was a primary school teacher. My dad was a secondary school teacher. They've been teachers their whole lives pretty much. And um, they worked in the local, you know, state schools. And, and I can't, one really cool thing about having teachers is, parents is um you know they they have the same holidays as you do so we had you know so the family unit was quite a unit we kept the same hours generally and this you know same holiday times and also you know i think teachers they're ordinary hard-working kiwis with a good heart and they imbibe you with a sense of fairness and right and wrong and you know morals and all that sort of thing so um I was really, you know, I think I love that phrase. I think Winston Churchill said, if you make one decision in life, choose your parents well. Right. <laughs> and, and so I chose my parents really well. So yeah, they, they gave me a very, a very, uh, a very good sense of what was important in life. Mm. Yeah. 
and and tell me a little bit about their backgrounds like had had they um, had they come from a family where education was important as well to then become teachers or um, I'm always curious yeah, to understand that generational. Yeah, they did. yeah. So my father's father was a teacher. So, um, so yeah, so the education sort of ran, there's a streak that ran through the family there. And my dad was, um, went to university, but, and back in those days, going to university was a pretty rare thing. You know, I think Auckland university at that stage had maybe 3000 students. Right. You know, it existed in two buildings. The whole university was in two buildings. So, um, and my mum's father was a pretty smart guy, an engine, pulp and paper engineer. And but of course, she she was English, and they were immigrants. They came over here, and but of course, she suffered from effectively the sexism of the age, mm. which meant that she was encouraged into secretarial type, or you know, the best that she could hope to be was a primary school teacher. So she just aspired to that. Mm. Um, and so, but she's have subsequently gone on and done university degrees and, you know, she's an amazing woman. And um, so, yeah, but the, the and just picking up on that, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Just the generational shifts of, of what people expect maybe, and what yeah. is possible. Um, I interviewed Margaret Austin now a couple of months ago. So she went oh, on to right. become an MP and, yeah. done amazing things in her life and she was describing the 1940s you know like when she was just finishing high school and going to university as basically one of the the only ones you know who who went to yeah. that next level um yeah i mean it, it's amazing how quickly it changes eh? i mean it was a ridiculous level of suppressed ambition with women back in those days and of course we lived in a road with a lot of maori and pacifica families too and you know Oh man, I mean, it just it embarrasses me to think about how you thought about those people back then. But you did, you know, and and so um, in my lifetime, one of the most wonderful things is to see the the options that my daughter has versus you know the options that my mother had in life. Just fantastic. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really good. And you mentioned your mother had come in as an immigrant. Was that a a sort of a part of your? childhood was the family back in England or was it yeah yeah so my mum came over with their whole family came over to build the pulp and paper mill at Kawarau so her father was the the guy the engineer who was responsible for building it basically so they came and the whole family came in and then the family went back but my mum fell in love uh met dad who was a at that stage actually training to be a an Anglican vicar um doing religious training and 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 um uh, he's subsequently, he's the most confirmed atheist I've ever met in my life now. So <laughs> away from that, but they fell in love. And so she stayed. And, and so an enduring part of that is interestingly is the guilt of staying behind and leaving the family. Um, and there's always been a calling for England with my mother. And actually I inherited it too. I've lived there three times. And right. um, uh, I feel partially English for sure it's an interesting dynamic isn't it my wife is English so her father lives in London and obviously right now with coronavirus and things there's this pull of I want to go see my father but I can't at at the best of times it's a at least a 24-hour journey right (laughs) it is yeah and it's amazing how that thing gets how you inherit that feeling isn't it like, you know, I often I was laughing with my partner the other day about where I wanted my ashes spread when I was you know, dead. And one third of them I want spread in a place in England. Right. Now, n- not because I am English, not because I have an English passport, but there is just something about going back to your roots. Eh? They, and I love it. The best example of that actually is in America where, you know, Americans describe them. So they don't describe themselves as American. They describe themselves as Irish Americans or mm. English Americans or you know German it's American. true my my um great my great grandmother described herself as scots irish which i'm not yeah. really exactly sure what that is but yeah. that was her ancestry that they went to america in you know like 1700s or whatever and uh, that you're right that's how she would describe herself and the, the characteristics that come from it it's yeah. actually interesting thinking about whakapapa and maori conceptions as well of where we've come from and the importance that that places on who we are today, because I think in the West, it's very common to just assume, well, I'm Stephen, I'm here at this moment in time. 
But I think in Te Ao Māori, there's more of this willingness to embrace the idea that we represent those who've come before us and a, and a you know, yes. a connection back. Yes, and, you know, the, the modern Western philosophy has been the, um, the creation of me versus we. You know, there are so many cultures where you are just a part of a continuum, right? And you yeah. are actually quite an irrelevant part of a continuum. In fact, one of the, not that I'm a Buddhist, but one of the things I love about Buddhism is it sort of puts you into perspective. Mm. And, and yet we live in a culture where I can change everything, I can do everything, I have complete freedom, all those sort of things where you create this um, thing about you. And that's, it, there's many good sides to that, but there is, it's not universally a good thing, right? So uh, yeah, I quite like that. And that's the, the lo lovely thing I love about the, the Maori way of thinking is it's just, it's infinite. Mm. You've arrived, you'll be a cut. In fact, in, in, interesting, there's a the very interesting similarity with the English in that way. There's a modesty and there's an acceptance that you are just a guardian or a custodian. In, in England, it's you're custodian of this house, so you're custodian of this property. Maori actually have a very similar view, actually, with regards yeah. to the land. You know, we just here, we'll look after it, we'll pass it on, and 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 I will become part of the id of this place, but just mm. a little part, and that's what I do. Mm. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting as we talk to see how this seeps through our conversation, because I think that's what true. you're doing today, there's some principles there that probably apply thinking about intergenerational, you know, sure. dynamics. Sure. And I, I, I personally love the idea of kaitiakitanga, stewardship it's becoming yeah. more well known now the idea yeah. that that we're here as guardians of what we have for the future rather mm. than just inheritors of wealth from the past that we then spend on ourselves yeah. and yeah. um yeah it's a because it's interesting isn't it you have because if you don't do that then you have the tragedy of the commons right mm. and um if you think about the biggest issue of our generation which is the environment you mm. simply have to Think of yourself as a customer. You, you, the environment will not survive if it becomes subject to the tragedy of the commons. I mean, look what looks what's happening now. Mm. When it's not that no one cares, but that people just turn a blind eye to the impact that they're having, and hoping mm. that someone else or something else or will, will sort it all out or it will sort itself out, as opposed to saying, "Actually, I'm a guardian and a custodian. I have a a moral obligation to my ancestors in the past and in the future to do the right thing now." So we yeah. just have to. In, in, in many ways, that's how we call ourselves an infinite company, simplicity. Like we're just mm -hmm. around forever. So yeah. what role do we play on the assumption that we'll be around forever? It's a very different way of thinking, actually. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's that infinite game sort of mentality yeah. of you know, Simon Sinek has popularized Absolutely. it recently. But just sort of thinking about we're not in it for the quarterly profit report. We're not in yeah. it for the yearly return. We're not yeah. in it for the next decade. We're here for the you know, 500 year plan. Oh, well, you know, yeah. I mean, Simon Sinek is, his thinking is simplicity, really. It's, 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 we've co opted a lot of what he said. Yeah. No, well, that's why I wanted to talk with you because I could tell from what I've read and seen and heard that there's a lot of echoes that are mirroring what I'm seeing as well, which mm -hmm. I, I talk about it being a paradigm shift of thinking that we're actually in a, a you know, it's a transformative time where we move from, extractive ways of thinking to regenerative ways of thinking. So, yeah, but we're getting sidetracked. So that's my fault. I'm sorry, but back to your, back to your childhood and things. Did you, um, did you enjoy outdoors activities? Did you enjoy indoors and reading or how would you characterize yourself at that sort of young age? All sorts of things. I mean, funny enough, um, I, I, this is weird. I, I think that one part of me is academic but bizarrely enough, I'm not a reader. Um, I'm an observer. Or at least if I'm a reader, I'm a re you know, I have a very short attention span. So I'll never finish a book. Um, you know, I'll always read halfway through and then I'll get a bit bored with it and I'll think I've got what I need to get from it. Yeah. Um, and then, so I'm always looking for stimulation and always mm -hmm. curious about what's going on, but I'm not curious in a patient manner. I'm impatiently curious. And so, um, and I think, well, people tell me anyway, they've got quite high energy levels for, you know, but, but the, um, 
when I grew up, I think there was an awful lot of stimulation mm-hmm. uh, all around me. And so, and I just loved, you know, I was always on the go. Mm. So um, to me, I mean, and this is going to sound terrible. And a lot of people think this is heresy, but to me, taking the time to read a whole book is almost like a waste of time. Right. Uh, and since that, you know, if you can tell me what I need to know in the first 20 pages, then I can get on with doing something else. Yeah. And I know that's, that's just me and, no, well, I, I can echo that thought in the sense of I've read a lot of books and sometimes I think I should have just read the introduction because yeah, yeah. that was the basic point. Like it was well, right there and then they yeah. padded it out with an extra 200 words because the publisher said, well, we can't sell this. <laughs> well, and actually, yes, so the, I think that in some cases that does happen. I've had some personal experience of that myself, but the, 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 um, I do envy people who can read a whole book <laughs> equally. You know, the grass is greener. I think it's amazing that you can remain focused um, on something and get so much pleasure over such a period of time and don't feel the need, mm-hmm. you know. So I think there's a lot of FOMO when you're running around trying to get the stimulation. You sort of, sort of, you know, in many ways, it's quite a schizophrenic life. It's right. fine. You know, yeah. at my age, you get used to it and you accept it. You don't feel the need to prove anything to anybody, but um, just, a, just a way of being, yeah. 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 No, that's cool. So you're, let's take you through sort of high school years and things like what yeah. were you interested in at that point? Did you have a, a certain career that was thinking yeah. I'd get into that or yeah. Talk, talk well, us through that. I, I think the thing that defined me um, in my youth was stuttering. So I had a very bad stutter mm-hmm. um, and I inherited it. Well, it, it started when I was about 10 mm-hmm. and by the time I was 11 or 12, it was extremely bad. And it's remained extremely bad until I was in my late teens, early Mm twenties. And to give you an example, I mean, I couldn't use a telephone. Um, I could speak in my worst moments, two or three words a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that was, and so that, you know, gosh, people look at that and say that's terrible, but there were some really cool things about that too, because that gave me a pretty good resilience and grit. Like, And I had to think about ways of um, coping, I guess. So, um, so, you know, not being able to answer telephone, for example, I just couldn't speak on the telephone. So, or at least, and then the ability to think ahead. So when I was speaking, I said, I can't say all these words. And I would imagine what I would say, I would knew the word I'd stutter on. So I had to find another word or another phrase Mm. or whatever. And these were all skills taught to me by my speech therapist. Mm. Um, and so we got to the point now, but the incredible thing about me was sort of weird was that even though I would stutter with you, as soon as I got on stage, no stuttering. Mm. So as soon as I had an audience, it was almost like freedom for me. I could speak. And I can't tell you how, why that happened. I mean, I was, and it was, I was 11 when my teacher said, I'd like you to give you a speech. I was absolutely petrified. And then and my parents were telling me it was terrible. It was probably you know, an, an emotional low in my life thing. And I had to get up on stage and give a speech. But then when I got up and I had an audience, oh, it was wow. almost like a miracle. And from then on, I was in debating, public speaking, any op- acting, any opportunity to have an audience. Hmm. So, so that is, you know, those people who have... Um, not such nice things to say about me would say there's narcissistic behaviors, attention getting behaviors, all those sorts of things. Actually, for me, it's not about that at all. For me, it is freedom. Mm. It's, it's um, a release and it's joy actually. Mm. And so being able to do something where I can do that and do some good and feel that the values and principles that my parents installed in me being able to do that is is just wonderful so i think i have the best job in the world i mean it's i I literally would not change if richard branson said you can run virgin or jeff bezos said i'd just say no thank you yeah yeah i'm doing that's great oh thank you for sharing that that's really it's an important element of a life is to understand what people have gone through and and how it's helped to shape them the interesting thing to me is that i've interviewed a lot of people who are social entrepreneurs or people doing things a little bit differently and oftentimes there is a link back to something in their childhood i don't i haven't analyzed the interviews but 
Um, for example, several people I've interviewed have, have told me that they suffered or had dyslexia and that dyslexia right. was the thing that they had to overcome. And that very similar message to what you just said, that the dyslexia caused them to think outside of the box because they, they didn't yeah. fit within the conventional way of answering questions or you know responding in school. And so they had to become more creative to then be able to develop it. And, and one of the episodes, I'll put a link in the show notes, the person described it as a superpower because it actually caused them to you know take the next level up. Whereas if it was just a normal childhood or, or things that maybe they wouldn't have developed those skills. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, look. I don't think you ever really know why or how it happened, um, mm. but you know, for some reason, I'm just good at talking on my feet, and and so and there's the most marvelous application of that in simplicity now because what I'm talking about is great stuff, you know, wonderful stuff, and and so I feel very lucky, um, but equally also, yeah, I mean, I think that. I don't think in life, I mean, I like that concept of grit in life, right? Mm. You know, so much of life is no one gets the perfect hand. Everyone's got their shit all the time, right? Just how do you handle it? Mm. Yeah, well, that's the thing I've discovered with the podcast is that once you start asking questions, like you say, no one has had a silver spoon in the sense that we've all gone through things. And also the people that you think have no issues or no worries, they do. (laughs) You just don't know what they are yet. Everyone's, <laughs> so. everyone's got their shit, right? Everyone, everyone, everyone. I mean, and, and in fact, usually, as you say, yeah, the people who give the most impression on the outside are just, they're just working very hard to give yeah. that external impression. That must be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, the times yeah. in life I've done that, it's just debilitating trying to present something that you aren't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you're getting through end of high school and um, looking to the future. Did you yeah. know? Yeah, did you know what you would do next? Get a no, job no, or so study? I, I, or... Wanted, I wanted through university. Um, I did philosophy and history and all that sort of stuff. And um, you know, I just had a fantastic time. I mean, I just met a group of friends and we were all in debating and speaking. We were like, let's call it um, hard drinking nerds. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're still all my best friends in life now. And um, so just a spectacular life. And I was working really hard. I was basically working full time in hotels and room servicing and supermarkets and studying full time. So it was all this, you know, constant activity. Um, and um, I really just went down a fairly conventional route. I got an internship with IBM and they taught me how to sell and taught me about computers and all that sort of stuff. And then I left couple of years later and of course being a you know kid from working class background with a gift of the gab you know when I saw the opportunities I grabbed them and and I saw and I become quite seduced by money and the external accoutrements of life you know this mm-hmm. so you know working class kid made good so and I went off and into investment banking and you know traveled around the world and made a bunch of money and and had some incredible experiences and um felt pretty good about myself you know just in that in that way you know i've made it i've got out of sunnyvale here i've you know got the fancy house and got the boats and all that sort of stuff and then um and sort of just so we're clear yeah. on the timing like how long of a period was this was this late 20s oh, would have been, 30s or yeah so it would have been from my um i started investment banking in my early 20s yeah and all oh, mid mid 20s really um early to mid 20s and then i got out of it in when i turned basically i mean i got out of that whole game let's call it that game when i turned 45 okay yeah Yeah. and so i had a an amazing couple of decades um and i say amazing because you know a lot of people who go through these midlife crises and these redemptions and that sort of almost like belittle their past and they say oh well i was it was all wrong and it no, it was absolutely fantastic and it was an amazing set of experiences, but it wasn't true. It, I got to a point where I thought, more money is not making me happy. This is not right. the kid <laughs> from West Auckland is not the kid I'm seeing in the mirror now. Yeah. You know, mum and dad would want me to be doing using whatever skills and abilities I have to do something better than just get a fancier house and a bigger boat yeah. and more money. 
It's interesting, though, what you're saying, because I think sometimes it is easy to disregard the past and say, well, that was the old life and things. But what I've learned is that everything you do in life prepares you for what comes next. And the reality is, if you hadn't done what you did, then you wouldn't have known the system well enough to then be able to disrupt it and do something different. I have a slightly similar story. I was um, basically late 30s. I worked for an international law firm. So I was based in Tokyo, London and Sydney for about 12 years. So moved around the world. Um, You know, the deals I was doing were on the front page of the business times and like big mergers and acquisitions and stuff. This is amazing. Um, But at some point realized basically around 38, 39 that this isn't really bringing me happiness or satisfaction. But if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today as a lawyer, I think. So it was all instrumental to build up. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if you think about simplicity, we're sort of, I call ourselves a a gamekeeper turned poacher, right? Mm. And you can only be a poacher if you know where the gamekeeper is, right? Right. Right. I mean, so we know where everybody's buried. We know every trick in the game. We know every... And no, we say, okay, we know this now. We're going to use. Yeah, you know the rules of the game. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. So, so you're absolutely right. That was, and and also, let's be very frank as well. We couldn't have set up simplicity unless I had had the financial stability to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and meet all the other obligations that I had acquired in my life with regards to family and so on and so forth. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in fact, it's, it's interesting in how we describe ourselves as a business because we call ourselves a dignity company, right? So we say that we just want to give people a dignified retirement and the dignity of their first home. And that's the why, you know, the Simon Sinek why. Why we're around yeah. is the dignity to give people dignity. And how we do that is give people choices. So, and what we do is make people more money so they have more choices, so they have dignity, right? Because the other mm. way is poverty sucks, right? Without poverty, you don't have choices. You get told what to do, told what to say, you know. But you know, you apply that at a personal level too. The money gives you choices in life. Mm-hmm. And if you exercise those choices, then you can get down to your why. And and there, and in, in fulfilling that why is the true happiness, working out what your why is. Yeah. Let's be practical here. You need to be able to do that. It takes time and effort and money and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> you know. Yeah, I've used the picture before of <clears throat> keys. You know, that there's, you're in a room and there's doors and they're locked. What is the key that will allow you to go through the door? So it, just as a practical example for me, you know, I spent five years studying to become a lawyer. That right. meant I was handed the key of being able to say, well, I'm a lawyer. Therefore, that door opened for me and then, you know, takes you yeah. into the next place. And it's yeah. similar. Yeah. Apply that to anything in life, right? There's some hard work to get to the point where you have the yeah. key, whether well, it's financial it's, stability or study or whatever. And it's interesting when that key opens three or four doors too, and you mm. have to choose which one of those to go through. Yeah. Because it's not just one door, right? You know, you, you acquire this actually quite broad set of skills in life that can be applied in a whole bunch of different areas. It's just, where do you want to go? And that, you know, I, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky that I think I went through the right door eventually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I can understand that that's there. There's a paradox of choice there as well, right? Yeah. So there's an obvious question here. What what caused you to to shift path? Was there an event um, that happened? Was it a slow burning thing over the years that you thought and then yeah. one day you woke up, looked in the mirror or yeah, t- talk us through that because I think that's helpful for people to listen to and and understand for their lives as well. I don't think there was a eureka moment. Um I think these things creep up on you. Mm-hmm. where they become increasingly less satisfactory, where the marginal utility you get from another deal, another bunch of money, another mana event, another fancy title, and you think, oh, that's not quite as good as it used to be. And you do get into that, well, hold on, hold on. On paper, I should be extremely happy here. Right. <laughs> I, so I, I had, you know, I, it was very interesting, actually. When I when I um, started my first job in investment banking, I was just a kid from Sunnyvale, right? And I arrived in, in London, and they actually flew me to Milan, and I was there for the model, if International Fashion Week in Milan. I was in the fanciest hotel in town. There was all these models running around. I thought, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> Six-star hotel. And had this piece of paper. And I wrote down, look, I'm not, you know, I've got to write this down now. I'm going to write down on the left-hand side how much money I, I want to make before I leave. 
because it was intending to go back to New Zealand at that point. And then these are all the experiences I want to do. And over the next 10 years, I would pull out that piece of paper, maybe once every two or three years. And after 10 years, what I'd saw is on the left-hand side, there was how much money I wanted. And it was a bigger number, crossed out, bigger number, crossed out, bigger number, crossed out. And that was the number that was going to make me happy. Right. So I'd actually, you know, you look at that and you think, okay, so the number now is 10 times the number there. And you're still writing a bigger number. So there's a right. lesson, right? Money doesn't make you happy. And there's your and then on the right-hand side, there are always experiences. I kept on adding them. And I said, that was about a third crossed off. So I'd done about a third of the things I wanted to do because I was so focused on making this money. And after a while, even a dumb schmuck like me wakes up and realizes, hold on, do you want to be filling in this paper like this for the rest of your life, right? So, so mm. I think there was that. Um, then there was the... You know, when you get there's the, the just a grind. You know, being the being in charge of a, a big business and having it, it's a grind. Yeah, you know, it, it's a tough job. It's tough at the top. You know, you you are at the top of a business because you make the hard decisions, not because you make the easy decisions, right? And it's just a constant series of hard things to do. This that's quite grinding. Then I think maybe there was one moment I was in the Christchurch earthquake, the second big one, right in the middle of it, and I had a pretty near-death experience i guess in, in the sense that anyone who was in there was you know under the table smashing glass everything and i got out of that and felt i had survivor guilt actually um maybe that was the catalyst i don't know but but um certainly um it was building over a number of years yeah for mm. sure mm. And, and eventually i got into the position where i could afford to do it um and I just, I made the decision and did it. And fortunately, I had some very supportive people around me, my partner and friends, yeah. and a bunch of people came on board and said, yeah, we'll do this with you. And so I was just, you know, I happened to have been the person who had the idea, but it's such a team effort. You know, it's, I'm yeah. one of four, four co-founders of this business. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. So what year was that then that it... That was kind of said, this is, uh, gosh, it would have been six years ago now. Yeah. 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 So we're at the time. So it's like 2015 or so around then. Yeah. yeah. And it took a year to get it together because we had to have the law changed and regulations changed for our business model to fit and then um, needed to get together. You know, you're just hustling and getting together the right people and setting things up and so on and so forth. And, and, and I don't think without the support of the people around me, I don't think I would have carried on with it. I may have just bailed and taken another fancy job with a big pay packet, but yeah, I'm so glad I didn't. And, yeah. And, oh, that's awesome. So describe some of those first meetings that you would have had when you're outlining what the vision is and, and describing it. Cause yeah. I can imagine many people would have said, what are you talking about? What is this? How did yeah. it go? Well, yeah. Well, I think that there are, there are two, Two characteristics there. One is that it's not a new idea. It was just what had worked overseas brought to New Zealand. So I think that you could, when you said that, this is not a new idea. This is just something we just bring it to New Zealand. A lot of Kiwis get that, right? Because right. I think people are pretty skeptical of the new. And I am too. We often thing I often say about simplicity is we don't do new ideas, not with other people's money. We only do what's worked overseas. We just bring it here and hopefully make it a little better. I said the second thing was that gift of the gab, all that talking, that debating, and so on and so forth means that you know I was I'm a good salesperson. I can sell, sell. So selling the concept to people and enrolling them, and this is all the volunteers, and because no one did anything for any money when we started Simplicity, it was all volunteer labor basically. Mm. Um, you know that takes a bit of selling, right? So maybe that was the the zenith of it was getting together. We have sixty seven volunteers now. Mm. And so all I am ever doing is selling, selling the idea of simplicity or, but I don't feel guilty about that anymore. I don't feel as if I'm selling things that are just designed to make me money or really not correct or, you know. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And the, um, the thing that I'd love to hear is a little bit about what you're actually doing today and what simplicity actually is. Cause we have listeners from the UK, the U S all over okay. the world, basically. Yeah. Um, and also Kiwis who may maybe haven't come across it yet. Could you just describe at, 
this yeah. is your invitation to do the sales because <laughs> <Sure, sure. laughs> I'm, I'm curious to see yeah. how you would describe it because I've read a lot of yeah. articles and media but I'd love yeah. to hear it from from you well, look, from, from, from everybody overseas if you just said we were the vanguard of New Zealand the non-profit fund manager that's not far wrong if in New Zealand if you said we were the southern cross of finance um, i.e., you know, the non-profit financial organisation. That's not a bad analogy either. So, and we're a blend of both. So, we're a non-profit company owned by a charity, and we give fifteen percent of our fees to that charity. The great thing about being a non-profit company is there's um, that means we we don't make any money. That means we're not worth any money. That means we'll never be bought or sold. We're designed to be here for a hundred years. So, right. deliberately designed very long term. And we manage KiwiSaver funds, which is like you know a, a superannuation pension fund manager. We run mm-hmm. non um, pension funds as well. We call investment funds, and we also provide mortgages for first home buyers as well. And um, after five years, we have uh, seventy thousand members. We have about $3.7 billion under management. We're saving people about $390 a year in fees each. And um, we've given away $2.5 million to charity. So and that's about $140,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Those numbers for New Zealand, overseas, they're not big numbers, but in New Zealand, those are big numbers and very fast growth and all that sort of stuff. What's amazing though, is the sand pit that we're playing in is going to be a $400 billion so, so hopefully we can be, you know, we'd be running 20, 30, $40 billion in, in 10 years time. And when you do that, that's, I mean, it's a lot of money and you can make a really big difference with that, not only in terms of saving members money um, and making them richer and giving them choices and dignity in life, but also how you invest that money as well. You can think incredibly long-term pretty much as the Maori think about investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's what we do. And so we're a, a charity, we're a fund manager, we're an investor, we're a social enterprise, many different hats. One of the problems we have with simplicity is almost schizophrenic. It's, you know, it just depends what you want to have a chat about and uh, and, and also there's very large numbers and and, and so on. So um, that's what we do. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Oh, that's cool. The amazing thing is once you start throwing the... Right, I think, you know, once you use the word billion... <laughs> Yeah, that's sure. that's a lot of zeros, right? So even is, on an yeah. international scale, that's growing. And the fascinating thing with KiwiSaver and things is people are continuing to contribute, you know, so it's oh, over totally, time, totally, totally, it's going to keep rising, right? Yeah, I mean, people forget that a billion dollars is a thousand million dollars, right? So in, in five years, people have given us $3,700 million. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount of money. Yeah? And it's a huge responsibility, of course, as well, but it's also a fantastic opportunity. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, and one of the reasons why we decided to do that was we thought we could make the biggest possible difference. I mean, I spent a year when I finished working, actually volunteering and planting trees and native trees and all that sort of thing and laboring really. And, and I thought, I love the giving back, but we're really not using my best skills here. Like, you know, mm. if I talk to the trees, they're not going to hear me. So how can I use my skills to make the biggest possible difference? And we're starting to get real scale now and starting to work, which is great. That's cool. So the practical ways that good is being done, it sounds like the charity itself is then reaching out and providing funding to others. Um, yeah. Look, I think there's a handful of ways we do good. One is that we obviously make people richer. So our funds are very good returners and we consistently top 10% of, because we charge the lowest fees, we charge one third of the fees of ordinary uh, fund managers and other ones, because we don't need to make a profit, we're a non-profit. That's the first thing, you just make people money, that's the first and most important thing. Second thing is we give money to charity and hopefully we want to become you know, one of the biggest charities in New Zealand over time because of the huge scale of our industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third thing we do is we're shareholder advocates, so we own reasonable chunks of New Zealand's biggest companies now and it's getting bigger every day and we can go in and and advocate for sustainability, diversity, all these things that are useful from a long-term shareholder perspective. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing we can do is we can invest money in ways which where you can make money and do good. So the classic one would be the mortgage, where we provide the cheapest mortgage in New Zealand, um, but we also make higher returns for our Kiwi Seven members because we cut the profit motive out, and we there's no distribution cost or anything. So we're able to do that, and we might be able to do that in things like affordable housing. The community finance is a classic example there, right? We've provided $20 million of funds there, which are a great investment for our members, but also end up doing some fantastic things in the community as well. So if you have a 
a very long-term view and you have a very large amount of money, but you have the mindset which says you can achieve both there. It's not one or the other. Yeah. You, know, um, uh, you can do both. And Yeah. And that's the thing I'd love to hear a little bit more about. So I'm just going to frame this by asking when you come to, because that's that those are big numbers now, which is, which is great. When you come to then going to an investment committee or the people make a decision, like, what do we do with this? Yeah. How are you, what's the lens that you're using to decide, right? Here's where we should put some funds because of the financial return, but also Mm. I guess, what are the other but also's that you're looking for, given yeah, yeah, the nature yeah, yeah, of who yeah, you are? I, I totally get it. So we actually have a remarkably simple lens. We're there to maximize the money we make for our members. That is our fiduciary responsibility. That's what they give us money for. So nothing we will do, we will make no decision that would make us less money to benefit the people who are receiving that money if our members make less money. Right? But we don't have to make those decisions because there are so many amazing investment opportunities where you get preferential access as a nonprofit owned by a charity. We can actually make really good money for members where effectively you're in a class of one. So, and I'll just use the mortgages again, right? So with our mortgages, we lend money at 1.9% floating. That's the cheapest floating rate in New Zealand by a mile. And you would say, so everyone who borrows money from us is saving about $100 a week on average in interest payments. It's a lot of money, right? For someone owning their first house, it's they're $5,000 better off after tax because they've got a mortgage with us. And you think, well, okay, so are we just giving it to them? No, 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 no. That 1.9% that we're charging is also three times what we get in the bank. And we can only lend that money because we facilitated the mechanism by which, by what, whereby we can become a mortgage lender. That's just like being a thrift or a building society in the old days, just online now. So it's not a new idea. It involves some technology. But actually, we're doing good because we're helping people into their first home and cheaper, and we're also making more money. So that's a case. And, and the reason there is we just cut out the banks. They're just gone with their profit motive. So that's redistributing the margin there between those two parties. So that makes more money, but also does good. That would be a classic example. Or, for example, let's say, say we got involved in the, in the rental housing market. Because we're a charity and a non-profit, we can go to iwi, we can go to churches, we can go to the government and say, listen, this is what we want to do. Could we get preferential access to land or could we get different land condi- terms and conditions or, you know, and, and, and if we can fund it, we mean, we, means that we can have no financing costs, there's no development margin because we're a non-profit, we might get preferential access to land, we might just lease land, you know, for 125 years. That might add up, add up to be a fantastic deal for renters because we can do affordably rent, but also fantastic for our members too, because we will be creating a really reliable income stream for them, which is better than we would get by putting the money in the bank or buying government bonds. Yeah. Because we've cut out a whole lot of margin. It's this phyllo pastry of fees that exists in the property market is the same that exists in the finance market, right? Everyone wanting to make a lot of money. If we say, well, we're going to cut all of that out. We're just going to go straight from consumer to consumer. Our members will own the, the the apartments that we will rent to other members, and no one else makes money in between. Yeah, we could end up making great money and doing good. So, you know, you can do both there, right? And and the fifteen percent we give to charity, that's just a cost discipline in the business. That means we have to run everything fifteen percent leaner than anyone else. That's mm-hmm. a good discipline to have anyway. Mm-hmm. And then that money ends up going to charity, which, by the way, means we have sixty-seven volunteers. Which and a whole lot of people sign up to us because we're a big charity. It's the same way that Southern Cross is so popular. You know, they have 75% of the healthcare market 75 years later. How is that? Well, they have a, a structural cost advantage because they don't have to make a profit and they have tremendous member goodwill required mm. over 75 years. Well, why can't we do that in the finance and the investment industry? Yeah. And that's, that's all we're doing. It's very simple. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that explanation. Thank you for outlining it clearly as well. Uh, I think that the term that's being used a little bit more these days is impact investing as well. Yeah. The, the, you know, the idea that uh, you could take the money that you've got, put it in a term deposit and get marginal interest rate, or you could use it to develop a project, yeah. whether it's some social housing or something else. And yeah. actually, I think people are coming more, they're becoming more aware of that. And I think the reality is there's a lot of groups out there that do have money and 
right now they keep it very conservatively within, you know, term deposits. Their SIPOs in theory don't allow them to invest in at riskier things, but hmm. actually I think this is the newer way of thinking. So, yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, I don't particularly like impact investing that says this is the social contract. You will make less money, but do good. I understand that's great. There's a way of doing that and that's a perfectly good compact between two people but we don't make less money to do good. We actually make more money to do good. And I think that's the real wake me up. That's the wake up for me too, is that the massive competitive advantage you have as a social enterprise as a nonprofit. And by the way, that's going to change capitalism. I mean, I know I sound a bit evangelistic here, but if you think about in the old days when you went into business, most businesses were capital hungry, right? If you wanted to be a retailer, you had to have branches. If you wanted to be a make distribute anything you usually had to make it um if you you know factories and roads and cars and shops and all those sort of things very capital hungry that means you went down the for-profit route right you needed shareholders and they wanted a return on that money but most businesses now like tech businesses they're online they don't need much capital and if like simplicity we never we have never been more than a million dollars in debt ever and that's all that's going to be get repaid in two months and then we're totally debt free so a massive economies of scale which means we'll just start lowering our fees but the even further so so if you're in a world now a high-tech world where you need less capital to set a business up that means a social enterprise becomes much more competitive so you see what simplicity is doing to the finance industry you expect to see and you see you've seen what for-profit models have done this like you've seen what uber has done to transport or amazon has done to retailing or Airbnb has done to accommodation but just imagine if amazon uber and Airbnb were social enterprises non-profit businesses that's going to start happening because there's just a whole bunch of people who are smarter who say listen i i want to be paid fairly but I want my life to have purpose. And it won't necessarily be the young kids doing this. We worship, it'll be older guys like me who say, you know what? I know this industry. I can set up and compete with it. I don't need a lot of money to do it because I can do it online. I'm going to give it a go. And then so suddenly you get social enterprise, I think is going to become a, to any business that is technology-based, social enterprise is going to become a serious disruptor. I could, and I've just, I can see it because I've seen what Simplicity have done. And look at Vanguard in, in the States. You know, Vanguard, a, a non-profit business, have been around for 40 years, the world's second biggest fund manager. They manage $9 trillion. They own 6% of every listed company in the United States, pretty much. 5% of every listed company in Europe. And not many people in New Zealand know this. Vanguard owns 2 to 3% of every listed New Zealand company. And they just don't appear in the shareholders register because for, for technical reasons, but non-profit business, 9,000, not, not, not 9,000 million, 9,000 billion dollars, <laughs> right? Just a 51 times the size of our economy. And, that, and it's a social enterprise, right? So, so anyone who says that social enterprises can't get bigger dreaming, they can get massive. And um, because they can become debt funded, they don't need to be equity funded. So they can just borrow whatever they need to grow. And as long as they'll repay it and they can repay it because they have a huge competitive advantage in terms of margin because they don't need to make a profit. So they just take a little bit of that to repay the debt. And so, sorry, I know I'm, I'll stop talking in a minute here, but the massive wake me up for, for me is that social enterprise, I think is going to be way more disruptive than people think. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> I wrote a book um, in 2017 called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a legal handbook. Oh, really? I'll send oh, it to cool. you and you can read the yeah, introduction. Please. That's all. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be lovely. Um, but yeah, I, it's what I've been seeing. I, I, I talked before, it's like the paradigm shifts of thinking that actually there's these monstrous shifts that are happening. And I think social enterprise is one label or one term that we're seeing. Impact investing is another label or a term. B Corps or benefit corporations yep. is another label or term. There are yep. all these different symptoms 
of a much wider shift that's happening. Um, and yeah, I, I call it kind of reimagining business. It's like actually thinking about it in a completely new and um, different way, um, which is really, really exciting. The, the one bit that I'm curious about from your perspective, because what you're talking about is social enterprise. It's, it's on that not-for-profit side of things. Right. What would you say, because in my mind, social enterprise, it's okay to make profit as well. Like I, I think that that's allowed and particularly for tech companies, I agree with you that they can, they can come in. And to me, it's about having a mission and a purpose, which is actually beyond the profit figure. The profit yeah. is there as a sustainable part of the business. It's not the essential focus. There's I actually think, something else. Yeah, I know. I agree with you there. I don't I make no particular differentiation between prof, for-profit and not-for-profit, except that I think also there's a tremendous amount of virtue-seeking and just, I'll use yeah. a colloquial term here, bullshit around businesses that call themselves social enterprise. What they want to do is make a lot of money. Yeah. And they kind of, they even, even fool themselves into thinking that they're actually there for the social purpose of their business or but actually someone comes along writes a fat checkbook and then they bugger off they give a little bit to the children's hospital and you know they bought themselves a bunch of virtue but they are no 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 more or less entrepreneurs seeking profit so i think it's a very misused word you know we don't use impact investing even though arguably so much of what simplicity is impact investing sometimes we use the word ethical but what does that mean as well you know there's just a whole lot of um Virtue signaling. Yeah, well, on. it's it it can yeah social washing, green washing, impact washing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a I agree with you, and and this is my fear for a term like social enterprise that it yeah. could get tainted very easily because oh, it, when Coca Cola comes out with their social enterprise yeah, yeah, flavored yeah, yeah. cherry cola, yeah. and it's like no, this can't you know this is not yeah yeah it, it, and and look and I see that and and some of our competitors they're all you know scrambling now the truth will come out. You know, because at the end of the day, funnily enough, it's not the virtues you have. It's what are you actually delivering to your customers, right? Of which that ethical social enterprise thing for the vast majority of people is a nice to have, but not a necessary. The necessary is, could you please make me wealthier? Could you please make my life better by giving me the money by which I can make the choices about what I want to do in life, right? Mm -hmm. So businesses that that, 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 that that don't deliver in that regard will get found out. Mm -hmm. um, but um yeah so all of these terms we use to my mind are sort of like yeah if you're really doing it i believe it otherwise it's just they're just words yeah no i just, agree i i think they're labels and you have to be careful about your use of language for me yeah. as a lawyer helping social entrepreneurs what i try to do is help them understand how they can enshrine their purpose and their mission within their constitutions yeah. so that yeah. it's actually it's actually a step that they've taken and it, unfortunately it's true that if somebody came with a big enough checkbook and they sold out the constitution could be amended but at least it's a step in the right way to yes, say totally, well actually totally. we have a mission and a purpose and not only that, we report on our mission and our purpose. Like to me, those are two key parts. That yeah, and I least, think that, yeah. that reporting is so key, right? So if you look at us now, you, when you go to a website, you'll see this thing called the numbers. And so the reporting to me is, even though we are, we have all of, we could, I could use all this woolly terms we like: charity, social enterprise, you know. But actually, yeah. how we measure ourselves is, is numerically. So we say actually. We've delivered this much in fee savings. We've given this much to charity. We've planted this many trees. And I really like the hard metrics because ultimately you can't, you can't hide from those. Mm. So if you say, this is what we're going to do. This is our purpose. Here's how we've, this is what we've actually done. It doesn't matter whether you make some profit there as well or not. To my mind, that's an, that's an irrelevance. Um, Although, you know, I do challenge most of the, because obviously we get pitched a lot of these ideas to people who want to see how we've done it. I do always challenge the for-profit motive and saying, you know, what is your motivation here? Because if you think that being a for-profit business will allow you to get ahead, maybe, maybe not. When I mean, we have 67 volunteers, we get way more in free services, discounted services. I have massive negotiation advantage versus any of our competitors because I sell it. We're a charity-owned, the nonprofit. No one's making money here except our members. Yeah, 
you get a huge competitive advantage um, in our business anyway, being that way, and, and a very enduring competitive advantage. Um, so for profit does not necessarily mean you will be more successful um, or that you necessarily have a competitive advantage that allows you to bring share capital, shareholders in as opposed to, you know, borrowing debt or... Um, yeah, so... But I, I agree with you. It's well. I think I think we're we're on the same page. We'll see if yeah. everybody listening um, is on the journey. Some people um, probably like the two of us a decade ago. <laughs> maybe we would have talked differently, right? Like it's oh. a, it is a it is a journey. You know, coming from an international law firm background with four thousand lawyers and big deals. Like this was not the way I talked a decade ago. Um, it's amazing. But, huh? Yeah, but the thing that I am really excited by is that there are initiatives like what you're doing and like somebody we've talked about before, Community Finance and James Palmer, yeah. Um, yeah. some of his ideas and, and some things to disrupt social housing. And like there's there's actually people doing some actual real work on the ground. And like that one, for example, you know, we've raised about $53 million in the last year to go to social housing, which is, really cool, which is amazing. It? It's great. And we've got other people coming in to support it and we've got great plans. And so there is, I guess there is on the horizon when I talk about those numbers as well, and your billions is obviously hugely impressive, but even 53 million, that's, that's not $10,000 donated or $100 here. It's cool. actually making a difference. And you know, the interesting thing about community finance, I was actually saying this to a bunch of budding social entrepreneurs the other day, which was that if you bring an idea to someone like us to fund it, don't bring us a new or different idea. A new or different is difficult. We've got to pigeonhole it, make it look and feel like everything else. So what yeah. the, the genius of community finance was, the purpose was is a wonderful one. And, and it's not a unique purpose, but it is a fabulous one. But they made the instrument we invest in look as close as possible like everything else we invest in. So the decision became easy. We're clearly doing good, and we're clearly doing good for our members. You know, in terms of building these houses for the people who are going to be in them, we're clearly also doing good for our members because we are investing in a very similar instrument, which is a sensible yeah. investment. Total win-win, right? Uh, you know, yeah. but, and, and by the way, even though I, James is capable of some wonderful new ideas, and you are too, but what was amazing about that was almost no new ideas, mm. just stuff that's worked. And, 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 and so, you know, I think everyone is, everyone is hell bent on finding the new thing or the unique thing or whatever. Actually, yeah. there's an awful lot of amazing things you can do by just doing what someone else has done. Just doing yeah. it. Better. Just doing but it. Then, but then having that little difference of what's the mission and the purpose and if you're not solely focused, like you aren't, and like we aren't at community finance, it's not just about profits. It's actually about the members. It's actually about doing good. It's about impact. And and just so we're clear, I'm the chair of community finance. So that's yeah. why yeah, I'm yeah. talking like I know what I'm talking about because I'm doing things with that all the time. So it's, it's a really exciting thing. Can I ask a question? I'm just curious about um, the members. And yeah. like when they come to you, like, what do you see as the future for, for KiwiSaver generically? And because if you go to KiwiSaver providers, generally there'll be a, a fund, you know, like yeah. invest in the high growth fund or mm-hmm. the, you know, long-term security fund or whatever. There's not much choice often in terms of like allocation as yeah. an investor. Is that something that you think will change in the future where there'll be more bespoke, yeah, well- like bits and pieces from different funds or yeah yeah what's your what's probably your yes i mean if you have a look now there's a couple of platforms out there that will allow you to choose multiple funds that make up your kiwi saver if you look at a really big market like australia about and it's called what we call an open architecture market open architecture which means you can put in anything you want to into your super fund pretty much within yeah. even classic cars and art and wine and about a third of the money is self-managed about two-thirds of it is managed by other people um for the vast majority of New Zealanders right now, they don't want to self-manage it, but if they do, they can. And it, there's heaps of room for both to grow. So, you know, with a big, deep, mature market, you get more choice and it's entirely appropriate that you do. Mm. We just have a very simple philosophy right now. Mm. Um, and, and by the way, I just want to clarify something as well. Every single morning I wake up, 
And the number one thing I'm thinking is how do I make our members richer? Mm. I do not think about how much social good can we do? But I do believe that in making members richer, you can you come across opportunities where you can do great things socially as well. But I absolutely want to be number one in terms of performance for managers because that gives people money and that gives them choices and dignity in life. And you know what? Most people are really smart and intelligent. They're actually capable. They're better able to spend their money than I am. So, you know, if you give them... So, so, so uh, I just wanted to just emphasize that we are paranoid, totally focused about being the best performing fund manager in the market, and we will be. And that's the reason why we chose non-profit and incredibly low fees, because we know that fees are the single most important determinant of returns. Not yeah. what you invest in, it's how much you charge to mm-hmm. do it. So, um, yeah, so... so no, that's good. It's good to clarify. I, I hear you. Social it's enterprise, that, we the, are an enterprise. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the it's there's there's many um, there's many win wins here, isn't there? Because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's the wins for but, the members. But, but you, you can't have one without the other. You can't do the good at scale unless you manage the money incredibly well at scale. Unless the enterprise is right, the social bit will be subscale, small, best of intentions, but not making a difference. So we want to make a scale difference. A yeah. big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the interesting thing in your model is that you're such a contrast to other market players. Uh, and I'm thinking about traditional ones because I know there are other ethical yeah. Kiwi savers that are they're coming through, which is awesome yeah. to see. But I'm thinking about the big Australian banks that are mm. here. You know, like when you when you look at the numbers that they're generating in profits and what happens to those oh, profits sure. and where do they go and they're probably headed offshore to Australia, right? Yeah. So there are, and look, even amongst some of the ethical ones, there are some for-profit models there which are quite extractive and, and there's some stunning hypocrisy amongst some of our competitors who call themselves ethical as well, in terms of you know who owns their business or how they run it or how these people live their daily lives, all this sort of stuff. So but all of these things come out in the wash, right? I mean, one of the interesting things about the finance industry is it treats its consumers like they're idiots. Like if you have a look at a bank billboard out there, it'll have a happy family jumping into a swimming pool and the message will be, give us your money and you can have a happy life. Right. The subliminal message there is money's difficult. Money's just give it to us. We'll look after it. And then you can get on with what's important to you in life. That's mm. treating your customer. That's, that's playing on apathy and fear. That's mm. rubbish. Most people are actually really good fund managers. If you have a mortgage, pay your bills, get a salary, bring up kids you're actually quite an expert fund manager even though you don't know it the actual little bit extra which is kiwi saver and how you invest your money it's really simple money is incredibly simple so if you treat people like they're intelligent and you treat the subject like the simple subject it really is that's all authentic you know so so and that gets back you know people took and, and it, people intelligently if you think about i'll give you a classic example we spend one tenth of what our competitors spend on what we call customer acquisition marketing and sales so for every $1 our competitors have to spend, we spend 10 cents. Right. Why is that? The other 90 cents is people just recommending us, friends and family. We do these exit polls. And, and always the biggest reason by far is friends and family told me. If someone recommends a financial product to you in New Zealand, that's one hell of a, you're going out on a limb there, right? People mm. don't recommend fund managers and investments because they know, oh, if it goes wrong, this will damage our friendship or our relationship, right? So if someone is going to recommend a financial product, you've got to think they really believe it, yeah? They're only really going to believe it if they know it's authentic, if it's for real, if they've seen the actual delivery of it. And you can only do that if you really operate that way. So I have no problem about our enduring competitive advantage. It's got nothing to do with me or... It's got the fact that it's real. <laughs> yeah, it's real. So yeah, no, so that's cool. So there's an inauthenticity. Our industry preys on ignorance and apathy. But if you treat people like the smart people they are, and you treat money like the simple subject it really is, and not be scared of it, you know that that's an enduring competitive advantage. Yeah. Well, it's comes through in our interview. You know, the simplicity of it, right? The simple just make things yeah. easy yeah yeah so if people are interested in finding out more what we'll do is put a link in the show notes if people click through they can find your website and things and then if there's any other resources that you want to share with the listeners 
I can get those from you as well. Okay, yeah, um, and well, I think it's all on, it's all on our website. And um, yeah, we've got some fantastic initiatives coming up. It's wonderful to be involved with community finance. It was just lovely to be able to do that. And I can see that if, if James and yourself keep on delivering what you're delivering, that's going to be in a, a long term uh, relationship because you know what you're doing is is making money and doing good. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, there's a complete alignment there with us at, at every level. Uh, and then you know, hopefully we'll get to do some pretty interesting things ourselves as well. That yeah, space. that's awesome. Well, we're, I think, you know, it's been, you said six years, right? So that's a pretty yeah. short time frame to have done what you've done and achieved what you've achieved. So the interesting thing to me will be see how you start diversifying and, and what it is that you get into next. And I'm sure there's plans that, you know, we'll have to do a follow-up in a couple of years and see what's <laughs> yeah, happened we'll next. Yeah, well, just like Vanguard are the second largest asset manager in the world, and I think they'll be the largest pretty soon, we fully intend to be the largest financial institution in New Zealand. I know people go, how can you do that? Well, mm. just wait and see. Yeah, right. well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sam. I really appreciate it. And in particular, um, just hearing about your childhood as well, you know, diving back into people's stories, I think is important. And, you know, hearing about stuttering and, you know, getting up on stage and, and the journey that you went on through your career, investment banking, and then having this realization and the link also with Christchurch. Cause I think that actually, cause I live in Christchurch. So yeah. there's a lot of people who started initiatives after what they went through. Oh, really? And I think Christchurch okay. is actually full of many new enterprises that have started because people looked at themselves and thought, what am I doing with my life? So um, it's interesting to hear about that link with what you're doing today. Um, but we'll put some links in the show notes and people can find out more. But I want to say thank you so much. We're in lockdown as we're speaking, but I really appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you to our members. And if I can just ask one favor, if you like what you see about Simplicity, just please just talk about us. That would be just lovely because we don't want to don't want to spend your money on marketing, you know, if we unless we absolutely have to. And yeah, and in these challenging times, Kia Kaha. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Sam. For me, there were lots of things that stood out, and I really enjoyed his reflections about the future of business. What's it going to be like? If you enjoyed this, then make sure you check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time.